Amen. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Mark, uh, sorry, Matthew 5, uh, if you have a Bible with you. We're continuing our series in the Sermon on the Mount. We're picking things up at verse 33 this morning. Probably about 10 years ago now, I read Phil Calloway's book uh, entitled To Be Perfectly Honest. Subtitle, One Man's Year of Almost Living Truthfully Could Change Your Life, No Lie. How many of you have ever read Phil Calloway? He's a, a believer in Jesus and a humorist. And I want to begin this morning just by reading uh, a couple pages from his prologue to this book that explains a little bit of the story that led him to write this book, To Be Perfectly Honest. He writes, Some phone calls change your Saturday, some your entire year. When my editor called, he couldn't have known he would accomplish both. I've, an, I've had an idea for a while, said Ron. It will make for a great book, and you're just the guy to write it. I'm human. I was flattered. Is it about understanding women, I asked? About being sensitive to my wife's needs? Why? I'm good at those things, Ron. I am most excellent. Are you telling the truth? Um, why do you ask? Well, that's what this book is about, complete and total honesty. I want you to see if you can tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth for an entire year. I'm sorry I said you're breaking up on this end. I pretended to hang up, and judging from the prolonged silence, he thought I had. The truth is, as my Native American friend Roy likes to say, I had reservations. For some, a lieless year would be an easy assignment. Their natural habitat is the truth. Not me. I lie for a living. Oh, I'm not a used car salesman or a politician, nor do I write copy for bank advertisements. It's worse. I'm a humorist. I stand in front of audiences and tell stories. These stories are 99.3 and three quarters percent true, at least as far as I can remember. But sometimes I add just enough salt to keep a tale savory, just enough falsehood to keep people interested. Some of the things I describe may not technically have happened, but they just as well might have. After pretending to get back in the line, I leaked all this information to Ron as if he were my priest. He seemed to listen attentively, though he could have been working a crossword puzzle, texting his wife or reading email. I told him the assignment would be complicated by the fact that I had been a chronic fudger all my life. Most people don't know this because I have become so adept at it, I fudge that I'm fudging. And to be honest with you, I learned it at church. The church my family was a part of seemed to reward falsehood. Nothing seemed to be more important than a person's outward appearance. So from an early age, I learned to fake my faith. Whenever anyone asked, I'd claim that I'd been having my devotions. I'd sing, I love to tell the story of Jesus and his love when I would sooner have had my eyebrows plucked by spider monkeys than talk to anyone about God. Our church embraced an impossible system of rules which was rigged to render you miserable, no matter what you did. Ignore the rules and you were guilt-ridden. Follow them to the letter and you ended up either self-righteous or sporting a nervous twitch. As a result, I bathed my answers to adult questions in what they preferred to hear. What have you been up to, Philip? The truthful answer was, when I haven't been coveting or gossiping, I've been lusting. And honestly, I kind of enjoyed all three. But instead, I'd just say, just struggling to memorize the Gospel of John, brother. 
Ron quite enjoyed hearing my confession, and instead of being discouraged by it all, he was more convinced than ever that I was the perfect author for the project. I mentioned once again that history did not weigh in on my side of success. My ancestors were horse traders, Ron. They sold slow animals, then got out of town fast. (laughs) You're our guy, he said, and we hung up. This morning, we... As we continue our study of the Sermon on the Mount, we come to a section where Jesus is going to speak about being truthful. I don't know if you've ever paused to think about some of the idioms, some of, some of the things we say. Uh, I entitled this, To Be Honest. We say that sometimes, right? To be honest with you, to tell the truth. Does that imply that the other times we're not? Can you imagine accepting this challenge that Phil was given? Total honesty, answering questions you're asked with complete truthfulness, no fudging at all. Perhaps our initial thought is that we are honest people, we don't lie, but living truthfully means much more than simply not telling lies. Deception and deceit can be subtle. It can be found in the things we say and the things we leave unsaid. They often surface in our thoughts and in our motives. Throughout Phil's book, he tells stories. Essentially, it's a collection of journal entries over the course of this year of, of trying to, to be honest all the time. And his stories entertain, but they do more than that. They will challenge you too, to live a life of greater truthfulness. We're in the midst of our study now of the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, a number of weeks ago, we entered into this section that was prefaced by Jesus saying, I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He's not come to get rid of the Old Testament Scriptures. He's not come to get rid of what has been said to God's people over the centuries, but to fulfill it. And He fulfills it in a number of ways. One of the ways Jesus fulfills the law is by uh, unpacking it for us, explaining it, helping us to understand it in all its fullness. And the six sections of the text that follow that is Jesus doing precisely that. He is explaining the law. He is helping His hearers, helping us understand what God intends, God's aim. That is, I've been contending that Jesus is not here giving us a new law. He's not giving us the old law cranked up on steroids. He is helping us grasp the heart of what God's law really is about. And so these six sections, these six paragraphs, are Jesus explaining it, Jesus illustrating, if you will, the law lived out. He is explaining what our lives increasingly look like when the good news of God's grace and love break into our lives, take root in our hearts. He is illustrating what our lives increasingly look like when the Holy Spirit is having His way in us. These are six illustrations. It's not exhaustive, but showing us in these areas, this is how the gospel impacts lives. With that all in mind, we must remember the very real danger we face as we make our way through each of these paragraphs. The danger is that we could get lost in the details and miss the point. I've contended that these paragraphs, it's not... It's, it's about the spirit, not merely the letter of the law. That, that it's about the heart and the mind, what's going on internally, not just our external behavior. That it's 
positive, not just negative, not just the things we're not to do, but positively how we are to live as disciples of Jesus. Fourth, that, that this is in fact freeing, not oppressive. These aren't rules to keep. This is showing us the life that we were created for, giving us freedom. And fifthly, that the goal of all that Jesus is teaching is greater intimacy with Him. That they in themselves are, are it's, it's, they are not an end in themselves. But this is the way for greater intimacy with Christ. And so with that all in mind, I invite you to follow along as I read Matthew 5, 33-37. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is His footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. I want to do four things with you this morning as we walk through this text. First, I, I, I want to speak to the issue. Second, I want to explain the context. Third, I, wa- I want to speak to the point. What's the point? And fourth, what are the implications? So the issue, the context, the point, and the implications for our lives. So let's start with the issue. The issue is that of oaths, of taking oaths, of making vows. The section we looked at uh, last Sunday focused on the matter of divorce, marriage and divorce. Uh, something about which we have no specific commandment in the Ten Commandments. But the two passages that we looked at prior to that were both based on commandments from the Ten Commandments. First was the issue of murder, uh, based on the Sixth Commandment, you shall not murder. And then secondly, the the topic of adultery, uh, you shall not commit adultery. Those were the first two paragraphs in these six illustrations. Here again, we come to a matter that is dealt with in the Ten Commandments. It actually relates to this issue of oaths and vows, relates to two of the commandments. The third commandment, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, and the ninth commandment, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Here, Jesus uh, begins in our passage referring to the Old Testament teaching to what the ancients have heard. You have heard that it was said. And here's what he says. Again, you've heard that it was said to people long ago. He's speaking to what they have been taught, what they have heard. Now, it's interesting to note that what Jesus uh, will quote here in a moment is not actually a quote from the Old Testament. He doesn't quote either the third or the ninth commandment. But what he says, though it's not a direct quote, it is an accurate summary of what the Old Testament taught in this regard. Here's what Jesus says, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. Now, you won't find that precise quote anywhere in the Old Testament, but that is accurately what the Old Testament taught, that people were to not break their oaths, they were to fulfill the vows that they made before the Lord. Uh, There are a number of Old Testaments that speak to this. Let me just share a few of those with you. In Exodus 20, 
You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Leviticus 19, do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Numbers 30, when a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but must do everything he said. Deuteronomy 10, fear the Lord your God and serve him, hold fast him and take your oaths in his name. There's all this teaching in the Old Testament that, that made it clear that God's people were to keep their oaths. They were not to misuse God's name. And in fact, this last text I read, they were supposed to take their oaths in God's name. That was what was taught in the Old Testament. They were required to keep their vows, their oaths, and they were to be careful not to misuse God's name. Now, perhaps surprisingly, Maybe it's surprising that they're actually commanded to take their oaths in God's name. But that's what we see. But look at what Jesus says in our text. He says, you've heard it said to the ancients long ago, but I tell you, do not swear an oath at all. Do not swear an oath at all. So the question is, what do we do with what Jesus says here? Because if we look at the Old Testament they were called to keep their oaths, their vows, not to misuse God's name. They were told to, to take their oaths in God's name. And he, Jesus came saying, I've come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And yet here it would seem that what he says contradicts that. He says, I tell you, don't swear an oath at all. So which is it? What are we to do with this? Is this in fact a contradiction or, or are we missing something? I want us to consider for a moment the wider witness of the Scriptures, not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament. But first, let's just think, think carefully through what exactly was an oath. An oath involved four things. It involved a declaration of truth. Secondly, it involved an acknowledgement that it was being spoken in the presence of God. And then third and fourth, there was an invocation, that is, uh, this call to God to bear witness, and an imprecation saying, God, you can avenge, like, take me out. Make it clear. If I'm not telling the truth, then, then make that clear. You can avenge, uh, avenge any lie that the oath taker takes. So those are the things. So declaration of the truth, recognition that it was in God's presence, invocation of God as my witness, and then saying, God, you can avenge any lie that is told. That was what an oath was. Now, I want you to listen to what Paul says. Because Paul, the Apostle Paul, makes a number of statements that sound a lot like an oath. He says this in 2 Corinthians, I call God as my witness, and I stake my life on it, that it was in order to spare you that, it not, that I did not return to Corinth. He, he says that to the Corinthians. In 1 Thessalonians, we read this, Paul says this, You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. A little bit later, he says, you are a witness, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. So Paul makes these statements that seem a lot like an oath. It certainly involves some elements of that. But, but the New Testament even speaks of God himself making an oath. Listen to this passage in Acts 2. Peter is preaching. And Peter says, fellow Israelites... I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. 
in Hebrews 6. The author of Hebrews says, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of His purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, He confirmed it with an oath. In fact, Jesus Himself, when He's on trial, He is placed under oath. He's called to answer a question under oath. Matthew 26, then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And, And Jesus responds, you've said so. He responds under oath. Now, that might leave us scratching our heads a little bit at this point and saying, okay, like the Old Testament said that people were to keep their oaths. The Old Testament said that they were to make their oaths in God's name. And and we see even in the New Testament uh, references to God making oaths, and we see Jesus speaking under oath. So so what what do we do with this when we come to this text where Jesus says, I I say to you, no oaths, don't don't swear at all. How are we to understand this? To find our answer, we need to look secondly from the issue of oaths to the context of Jesus' day, what was going on in that day. I want to remind you of some of the things that we have already explored and discovered through our study to this point in the Sermon on the Mount. First, in the section that deals with murder, you may recall that Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, you shall not murder, but I say, if you hate someone, you're already guilty of murder. See, remember the religious leaders thought and taught that so long as you didn't spill human blood, as long as you didn't actually kill someone, you were good. You're keeping the law. The second matter was the matter of adultery. And similarly, the religious leaders thought and they taught that as long as you weren't in bed with someone who wasn't your spouse, you were good. You were keeping the law. In the paragraph we looked at last week dealing with divorce, we, we saw what Jesus said there, that, that the religious leaders were wrongly fixated on looking for reasons to end a marriage rather than on God's design for the permanence of marriage. They thought, hey, if we're just divorcing for legit reasons, then we're good. We're keeping the law. And so over and over and over and over again, we see that they're missing the point. They're missing the point, and they're interpreting the law in a way that makes obedience to the law, they think obedience to the law, more doable. And what they were in fact doing is they were lessening the demands of the law and widening the permissions of the law. They were making it doable. They were missing God's heart. They were missing the point. Regarding oaths, John Stott writes this, if rabbis tended to be permissive in their attitude to divorce, they were permissive also in their teaching about oaths. See, the religious leaders, they did not want to be found guilty of of misusing God's name when it came to oaths. They saw those commandments. Okay, we're not to misuse God's name, and so when we make an oath, we've got to be careful that we don't do that. And so, here's what they they did. They they would try and figure out how to make an oath without making a reference to God because then they could break their oath and not misuse God's name. 
They had developed a whole system of formula. Of if you say these words, if you do it this way, then you can break it and you're good. You're still keeping the law. I mean, the, the, the thought of that day was swear by something other than God. That was the advice of the day. Later on in Matthew, listen to Jesus' words of rebuke to the religious leaders. Matthew 23. Woe to you blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Do you see what Jesus is doing? See, D.A. Carson says the swearing of oaths in Jesus' day had denigrated into terrible rules which let you know when you can get away with lying and deception and when you can't. That's what oaths had become in Jesus' day. And so Jesus here confronts the game they're playing. They've created this whole system that does not lead to truthfulness but to deception, to lies. And and as they do that, they think, well, if I didn't do this, if I didn't use these words, if I didn't invoke God's name, then I'm keeping the law. They're missing the point. It's a complete sham. That leads us to the third thing I wanted to talk about, and that is the point. Look at what Jesus says. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is His footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Jesus begins by arguing that the question of formula, getting the words just right and making a vow, is of complete irrelevance. Jesus is making the point here that everything, absolutely everything is related to God. Heaven, earth, Jerusalem. You cannot swear by anything behind which God does not stand. God has made everything. God is over everything. He is behind everything. So no matter what you swear by, God is your witness. God hears everything you say. God sees everything you do. You you cannot come up with some oath sworn over anything that is not related to God. However hard you try, John Stott writes, Jesus said you cannot avoid some reference to God for the whole world is God's world and you cannot eliminate Him from any of it. This is true even of your own head. Your own head is your own head in that it's not someone else's head. But even your head, you have no control over. You can't turn a hair white or black. Not really. Or any other color. Not really. Everything we say, everything, everything we do, we say and do before God. God is our witness. Always. Always and in every instance. 
And, and so the point of this text, the point of what Jesus is saying, is, is that as those in whom the gospel is taking root, the good news of God's inbreaking kingdom, the good news of God's grace and His love, as the gospel takes root in our hearts, we are transformed into men and women, young and old, teenagers, boys, girls, who are becoming increasingly truthful, honest, people of integrity. See, it's not about just making sure you get the wording right so that you can be deceptive. It's not about getting the right formula so you can rip someone off. It's, it's not about finding some way to avoid being truthful. It's about speaking truthfully. It's about living truthfully. It's about integrity. Stott says, the real implication of the law is that we must keep our promises and be people of our world. Christ calls us to be men and women who speak truthfully. And that we speak truthfully in every context, in every situation. And the reality is, if that's who we are, then oaths are completely redundant. Right? I know it's just an idiom, but if I say to you, hey, to tell you the truth, what does that imply about every other time I say something? Hey, to be honest with you, all the rest of the stuff I say is garbage, but to be honest with you right now, right? Like, is that? No, if, if we are truthful, if we always speak truthfully, and if we repent and confess when we don't, but if we speak truthfully, then, then oaths are unnecessary, vows are unnecessary. We, we can simply be trusted. The point is not so much, I would contend, that, that make it, making or taking an oath is something in and of itself that is so horribly wrong. D.A. Carson says that some people think this text prohibits them from taking oaths in a courtroom, for example. Their desire to obey God is admirable, but I submit they have not really understood it. In our Mennonite brethren tradition, that's been something I, I grew up in hear, hearing about. Okay, we don't, we don't ever swear oaths. We affirm to tell the truth. And, and, and I, I'm fine with that, but... I, Jesus' point, like we see oaths throughout Scripture, Jesus under oath, the, the issue is not so much, please hear this, the issue is not that somehow there's something evil about being under an oath. The point is we are always to be truthful, making oaths completely unnecessary. We, we need to be careful how we come to this text, because remember, remember earlier text when Jesus spoke about adultery, He said, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Is Jesus saying literally we are to maim ourselves, to pluck out an eye? And I said when I preached that message, hey, lust is possible with one eye, it's possible with eyes closed, it's possible with no eyes. Plucking out your eye is a rhetorical device. Jesus is saying go to whatever lengths necessary to root that sin out of your life. Simply a wooden, literalistic interpretation of this can miss the point. I've heard accounts of, of Mennonite businessmen who will go to court and, and they won't take an oath. They'll affirm to tell the truth and then the next week they'll be ripping someone off through dishonesty. And that's to miss the point. We are to be truthful. We are to be men and women of integrity. 
Herb Kopp, who used to be many years ago a Mennonite Brethren pastor here in, in Edmonton, said one of the dangers facing the new people of God is that a new legalism may replace the old legalism. Jesus isn't giving us a new law. He's helping us to understand the heart of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes this when we think about oaths and vows. He says, the very existence of oaths is a proof that there are such things as lies. If lying were unknown, there would be no need for oaths. Since they always speak the whole truth and nothing but the truth, there is no need for an oath which would only throw doubt on the veracity of all their other statements. That is why the oath is of the evil one. Satan is the father of lies, we read. That when Satan lies, he speaks his native tongue. And Bonhoeffer says, oaths and vows just create space for lies. Provides a playground for dishonesty. Let's turn fourthly to the implications of this for our lives today. First, I, I want us to recognize the character of Jesus. Jesus who came and said, I am the truth. I am the truth. The Christian life is, is not a life about finding and following a set of rules. The Christian life is about becoming more like Jesus, being conformed into His image. When the gospel invades our hearts, we are transformed. Bit by bit, little by little, we become men and women who look more and more like Jesus. We begin to take on the character of Jesus, the one who is the truth. Lewis Smead says, we are never more like God than when we keep our promises, when we keep our word. I want us to reflect on, recognize the character of Jesus. Secondly, I want us to reject the premise of the world around us when it comes to oaths, that that there would somehow be something more honest, more trustworthy in something we or anyone else would say under oath, but rather that, that we would simply be men and women who always seek to tell the truth, to be those of integrity. Josephus, a Jewish uh, historian, not a follower of Jesus, not a believer, he wrote this about uh, the Essenes, which was a, a Jewish sect that had moved out of the city into the wilderness. Here's what he writes about them. Any word of theirs has more force than an oath. Swearing they avoid, regarding it as worse than perjury, for they say that one who has not believed without appeal to God stands condemned already. Christ just calls us to be people of truth. And third, I want to call us all, remind us that we are those who have heard the gospel, that we are to rest in the gospel, to rest in the good news. And here's, here's what we need to grasp. Jesus knows everything about you and about me. Jesus knows the truth. Jesus knows. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your failures. He knows your sin. He knows the truth. And the message of the Gospel is that He knows the truth and yet He loves you. And He loves me. That He came knowing that truth. He came and gave Himself for you and for me. 
that he went to the cross and he bore the penalty for our lack of integrity, for our dishonesties, for our, for our lies. He died and paid the price for all of it, knowing the truth about us, so that through faith in him we would be washed and cleansed, that we would be declared men and women, boys and girls, teenagers of integrity, truthfulness. We are clothed with the truthfulness of Christ. And because of His love, and because of His forgiveness, we no longer have to hide. We don't have to hide from the truth. We don't need to. We can simply stand in the light. We don't need to hide like our first parents did behind fig leaves. We don't have to try and make ourselves look better. We can step into the light, and we can invite the one who is the truth to shape us to be men and women of the truth too. Again, Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, says complete truthfulness is only possible where sin has been uncovered and forgiven by Jesus. The cross is God's truth about us, and therefore it is the only power which can make us truthful. It's only the cross of Christ that can shape us to be men and women who hear the point of what Jesus is saying, that we would be transformed into those who can boldly, faithfully speak truth, to live honestly. The prophet Jeremiah states this about the truth of humanity. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? See, God, God demands perfect holiness. We're getting to that. The end of chapter 5, the last verse is, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. We'll wrestle with that when we get there. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the call. And Jeremiah goes, the human heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. But see, Jesus came. And Jesus bore our penalty. He bore it. And so that we do not need to be men and women who lie and deceive and distort and hide. He has come and borne that to set us free, to lead us into the light. No more hiding, no more deception, no more lies. See, the truth no longer threatens us. Because you'll recall, if you've been with us, that this whole sermon begins with the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who have it all together. Blessed are those who look really good and spiritual. It's not how it begins. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who recognize their utter spiritual poverty, their spiritual bankruptcy, that they come to God empty-handed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, who recognize their own deviousness, their deception, their lies, their dishonesty. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, not those who've got it all together, but those who who recognize the truth about themselves and, and trust God with it. They will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who, not who are righteous, but blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be satisfied. Brothers and sisters, I want to point you to Jesus. 
Jesus calls us to be men and women of truth, and Jesus has come and borne our penalty and clothed us with His perfection so that we can be transformed by the power of the gospel, the power of His Spirit in us. We can speak the truth. We can be real. We can stop hiding. We can live with integrity. And we can recognize that oaths and vows are completely unnecessary and redundant. That is what Jesus is saying. That is what Jesus is helping us to see. That is what Jesus is wanting us to grasp so that we can step into lives of complete truthfulness and try, by God's grace, like Phil Calloway, to be perfectly honest. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You for Your work. We thank You, Jesus, that You have gone to the cross, that You have borne what we deserve, and that You clothe us with Your perfection, and that because of that truth, Lord, we can become men and women, boys and girls, teenagers who are truthful, who live in the light. We pray, come Holy Spirit, move in us to that end for our joy and for your glory. Amen.